She Said. She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. Several adjectives come to mind when I think about Jennifer Griffin, who's our guest today. She's smart, accomplished, tenacious, incredibly kind, but perhaps the two words that really stand out the most are fearless and brave. Most people know her from her work covering the Pentagon and national security issues for Fox News, but her own story and her own experiences in journalism are actually a story unto themselves. Most recently, she's covered the rising tensions between the US and North Korea, as well as the ongoing battle with the Islamic State. She's interviewed and covered the most significant players in national security, including a rare and extensive interview with former Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon back in 2009, just before he lapsed into a coma. Keep in mind, Jen has done much of this incredible work while raising three amazing children, alongside her husband, who is fellow national security correspondent for National Public Radio, Greg Myrie. Jen, welcome. We're so delighted to be here with you today. Oh, thank you, Laura. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Truly honored. So you have an amazing resume, an amazing story, but most folks may not know, how did you get into journalism? And in particular, how did you end up in journalism in some of the most far-flung, war-torn parts of the world? Well, probably a short answer is um, love. It was a very roundabout way to start as a journalist. I was a, a college student, and I took a year off after my sophomore year. I was at Harvard, and I had met two visiting South Africans. Uh, one had been the, was the editor for the Sowetan, a newspaper. The, at the time, apartheid was still in place, and it was the main black newspaper in South Africa. He was a Neiman Fellow at Harvard, and then there was another visiting fellow who taught at the University of the Western Cape, which under apartheid was uh, designated a colored university and, and had become a political hotbed for the ANC. So I met these amazing uh, individuals Individuals, and they said, why don't you come down to South Africa? Why don't you come see what's going on for yourself? I was working for the Crimson at the time. Um, our, the newspaper our, at Harvard. Exactly. And, and so really, it was a whim to go see what was happening in South Africa as we didn't know that apartheid was ending. F.W. de Klerk had just been elected. And so I went down and I was going to live with a family and work at the Sowetan in the um, townships. And at the within the first month, I was in Soweto at the first legal ANC rally. Again, when F.W. de Klerk came to power, he started making changes and he was uh, testing the, wa the waters to see if Nelson Mandela, how the country would handle releasing Nelson Mandela from Robben Island. And so he released a few prisoners from Roblin Island who were top ANC leaders. And in October, I went out with the, the journalists from the Sowetan to cover this amazing moment. I mean, before that time, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't even sing the uh, national anthem or show the ANC flag without getting arrested. And at that moment, I was in a small booth, and just to show you how long ago it was, there were no cell phones, uh, there certainly was no email and no internet, and uh, a young reporter with a red St. Louis Cardinals baseball cap came into our booth to use our landline to, re to report his story. He was working for the AP, and his name was Greg Myrie. And, <laughs> 
and we we met on that day in Soweto and went on our first date that week and he was covering all the excitement of the changes that were happening in South Africa. I began tagging along. I began writing uh, freelance articles and lo and behold, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. We were there that day in Cape Town and it was just a, I was following my heart. It was romantic. I was meeting these incredible, at that time, being a foreign correspondent was like being a diplomat. It, it was it was a, a, a what you did at the end of your career when you were a journalist. And so all the greats, all the great journalists who I'd been reading uh, as a young uh, college student, they were all they were all in South Africa or they were in Jerusalem or Moscow. And it was really uh, seeing these these incredible journalists and the having a front row seat as history was changing. I was in Namibia uh, during their independence uh, just I can mention it I, I fell in love with it I fell in love with the adrenaline and the excitement and the uh, the young photographers who would take me out on the morning runs into uh, Soweto to see what the overnight violence had wrought at that time there were there were necklacings taking place and fighting between the the different black groups who were trying to position themselves for the day after apartheid ended ANSI versus Inkata I ended up going back to Harvard and getting a money to go back and do my thesis in South Africa so it was this love of Affair that began and then Greg and I decided at the end of two years of dating back and forth and me going back to finish up at Harvard that at that point the I would get phone calls in the dining hall at Harvard from him on a satellite phone uh, 30, I think it was $30 a minute and he would call and my roommates would come and get me and he was in Kuwait he was one of the first journalists into Kuwait at the start of the Gulf War in 1991 and so it just, I was hooked from minute one. And we, what was really fun is being able to do this with a boyfriend and later my husband. And we traveled all over Africa. And uh, the story I, I like to tell, after I graduated, I was given a little bit of money from um, my dad at graduation. I was supposed to go down to South Africa and start as a freelance journalist. And at that time, it seemed like a lot of money, but now, in, nowadays, it really wasn't much. It was about $1,500. And I got to South Africa, and Greg said to me, great, glad you're here. I'm leaving on Monday for Somalia because it was the summer of 1992. The famine was in full bore. It was before the Marines had been sent in, before Black Hawk Down, before uh, the world knew what was happening in Somalia. And I didn't understand what it was like to be married to a foreign correspondent. And so I stewed for about a week and I couldn't call Greg because he was in Mogadishu. There were, he was staying at the UNICEF house. There were no cell phones or internet. And I used that money, bought a ticket to Nairobi, and had to negotiate my way onto a small plane. That we, at the small airport, there were UNICEF flights taking aid workers and a few journalists in who were accredited. And on the other end of the airport, there were uh, planes uh, that the cot dealers, the drug dealers who were flying cot, uh, which the Somalis like to chew, into Mogadishu. Those were the only planes flying in because there was so much shooting in the capital taking place. So I was negotiating, since I only had my Harvard ID, I didn't 
have a, a um, I wasn't an accredited journalist, and somebody from the Toronto Star took me under their wing, took me down to the UNICEF folks, and um, the cot dealers would have let me pay my weight in cot to uh, <laughs> offset whatever drugs they weren't able to take into Mogadishu that day. Um, but the UNICEF folks t uh, felt sorry for me. I arrived. It was AP, Reuters, BBC, and no one else covering that famine. And we spent the next month documenting it. And I believe it's the reason that the US um, got involved. And uh, for better or worse, it was, again, the beginning of this long journey. And Greg and I did it together. We've raised three children together. We moved from South Africa to a number of other countries. We ended our tour for seven years. We were in Israel covering the Intifada from the day that the first stone was thrown when Ariel Sharon went to the Temple Mount. Uh, that day I realized I was pregnant with my daughter Annalise because I had morning sickness standing at the base of the Temple Mount. Um, but that was officially the start of the Intifada and we stayed there for seven more years. Wow, that's amazing. So it started with a love affair, both a love of journalism and a love of this person. But ultimately, you found real meaning in the work. Talk about what journalism means to you. Why is it important? Well, it's if I think back to our journey, and again, it would it would take us when when we left South Africa. Um, the next assignment was Islamabad, Pakistan, in the early '90s. So it's 1993 to '95. Which 1993, remember, uh, the Soviets had pulled out of Afghanistan. The U.S. and the CIA had armed the Mujahideen to fight against the Soviets. That was the sort of last Cold War battle. And when we arrived. The Americans were just so ready to be done with Pakistan and Afghanistan, but there were still all the remnants of the war that we had we had really funded and 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 been so heavily involved in, and we started seeing the signs that not only uh, can we mark the moment when the Taliban were being discussed and formed in Islamabad. I remember we arrived. It was actually Greg's birthday. We arrived in Islamabad and we went straight to Benazir Bhutto's living room. Remember, she had been a graduate also of, at the time, Radcliffe and Oxford. She was the great hope that she was the first modern female head of a Muslim state. Uh, there were, I, for me, as a young 23-year-old, uh, I thought, this is amazing to meet this woman. And I was so shocked when I did actually meet her that she did not live up to my expectations of what she was very haughty and very uh, regal and did not seem to be in touch with the needs of the people or be very concerned about women's issues. And that was the real rap on her during the time that we were there. And I did some controversial pieces as a woman uh, freelancing, things that I could say about her perhaps that maybe Greg didn't feel comfortable saying uh, working for the AP. I had a freedom in Islamabad because, again, there were no journalists there. There were AP, VOA, BBC and Reuters, very few people covering Afghanistan and Islamabad. And yet, the seeds of the terrorism we see today, the seeds of al-Qaeda, the beginnings of the Taliban, it was Benazir Bhutto's interior minister who uh, thought it was a good idea to recruit the Taliban from the madrasas in uh, Peshawar and down in uh, outside Multan, where we were visiting those madrasas. We were going and seeing firsthand, and we thought, this is insane. Right. We were talking to uh, State Department officials from the U.S. And, and people who were working for the CIA, 
day who were trying to convince us that the Taliban might be the best hope for bringing stability to Afghanistan. So to, to witness that and be able to write uh, an opposing view of the formation of the Taliban, and then 20 some odd years later to still be writing about the Taliban and trying to figure out, help uh, discuss with, hold the, the Pentagon and top generals feet to the fire as to why are we still in Afghanistan. That journey, all of the people that I met, whether it was South Africa or Islamabad, later we moved to Moscow at the end of the Yeltsin era when Putin was coming to power, and we were among the first journalists to wave the flag and talk about how dangerous Putin was. I was in, Isla in Moscow when, when it was suspected that Putin had ordered as head of the FSB the blowing up of those apartment complexes as an excuse to send troops into Chechnya. We couldn't believe our eyes at the time. Fast forward, 20, again, 22 years later, covering the, the last presidential campaign, being on the plane with Hillary Clinton when, uh, as a candidate and asking her the question, if the Russians interfered in our election, is that an act of war? There are moments in time that we have been able to ask questions that, and, and see things because of that journey overseas and because of that incredible experience of living in countries that so many Americans uh, don't know anything about, but now are on the receiving end of very serious national security dangers, whether it's terrorism, whether it's Russia. That has been the great privilege of my lifetime and as, of my career as a, as a national security correspondent. As you reflect on this period, having more women, does it matter? I think it really does matter, and I think if you look, so I've been at the Pentagon for the last 11 years, and if you look at the changes that have taken place while I've been um, on my beat, you have women now, the exclusion, uh, the combat exclusion has been lifted. Women can now be in combat even though they officially were in combat. Um, after 9-11 in Iraq, in Afghanistan, women were already flying combat aircraft. They were involved uh, in combat frontline roles, but they weren't getting recognized for it. What did that mean? That meant that they weren't getting the promotions and they couldn't move up within the chain and the hierarchy within the Pentagon. If you look at the uh, this upcoming midterm election, look at all the women who had served in combat roles who are now running for for higher office. It used to be in this country that military service was a prerequisite, and we saw that with the remembrances of John McCain, that it used to be that every president had served in the military, or at least in Congress you had served in the military. Now, with that combat exclusion lifted and with women able to rise up within the Pentagon, that is also going to spill over into civilian life, and you're going to see women who have a multifaceted background running for Congress, and it's not going to be the same boys club on the Armed Services Committee that it once was. Do you think it's mattered that you're a woman other than, you know, you, you're, you're a role model for other young women, which in and of itself is really important. But beyond that, has it helped you or impacted your work in any way? Being there on the front lines, being uh, sometimes the only woman in a room, I came to not uh, re I, I don't know, maybe because I was in my 20s and I was a brash, young, you know, Harvard graduate who thought that, that I could do anything and was raised that way. And it, I was a child of the 70s, and Title IX changed when I was growing up and when I was starting to play sports. 
I was a product of Title IX. I played sports as a young girl. I played soccer. I remember an argument in our living room when they told me that girls could only play softball, but boys were allowed to play baseball, and I, I questioned it. I, I played on co-ed soccer teams as a young girl. I went on to play high school sports at a very competitive level, and that competition and the the role models I had as women who who taught us how to compete and how to believe in ourselves and that's what allowed me to go overseas and maybe that's where I I left my fear at the door because mm -hmm. because on on a field you get bruised you fall down you you're it's a physical game and you and you you love competing with men so when I was a young 20-something uh, alone in a village in Afghanistan or seated interviewing um, uh, terrorists who believe that women should have their, their hair covered, I will say to you, Laura, I was not scared. Now, that's not because I'm brave, because actually the older I am, I'm probably a lot less brave. I probably wouldn't <laughs> do some of these things. And if you ask my children, none of them think I'm brave. They think I'm a worrywart mom like the rest of us. And sitting back here in the US, but I didn't have time to think when I was young. And suddenly, I found myself able to tell stories because guess what? In those Afghan villages, when I was the only woman, who would whistle and call me over to the air, the Purda area where the women were kept behind walls and nobody, a, a male, or if Greg was with me, with me, he couldn't go and interview those women. Mm -hmm. He couldn't find out what they were thinking or what was really happening in the village. And guess what? Fast forward 20 years and the U.S. military figured the same thing out. They began using female Marines, who they called lionesses, to go into the villages, knock on the doors during their night raids because they could talk to the women. And the women knew where all the men age 18 to 24 were who were likely smuggling the weapons or, or fighting for the Taliban. And so those women have been the secret weapon in the Middle East for the U.S. military. I learned that years before. Mm. The, the thing that changed in my business is that I think in a post 9-11 world after Al-Qaeda and others started to realize that if they targeted journalists and kidnapped journalists and beheaded journalists that they would get attention. Before that we as foreign correspondents felt that we could go anywhere and were untouched because even all of those characters who later turned to kidnapping, they needed us to tell their stories. And so we felt it was almost like you had a, a special diplomatic passport or something to go in. Now, I would really think twice about going to some of the places that I quite brazenly went as a, as a young reporter. Uh, the same was true in Israel, going to the Palestinian areas, to Gaza. I found that being not just a woman, but being a pregnant woman was really an incredible leveling agent when I would go and interview Palestinian mothers. Or I remember interviewing the mother of a suicide bomber once in Gaza, and I was very pregnant at the time. I, I was wearing a flak jacket over a, a really expanded belly. And there was just something about, and because I was doing television at the time, seeing a pregnant mother interview a mother who has just made a video with her son sending him off as a suicide bomber, 
there were questions I could ask her. There were things that I could ask her as a mother. There were emotions that I could show in many of the stories that I've told over the years, whether it was when Israeli settlers were being dragged out of their homes in the Gaza Strip. I was allowed into those living rooms with a live camera and showing the, the emotion of those Israeli settlers at that very uh, historic moment, uh, a decision taken by Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, which was so unexpected at the time. We broadcast live from the living rooms. I am certain that my male colleagues were not given that same privilege. I can't put a finger on it, but I know I've been given access. Maybe maybe they underestimated me. Maybe being in the Middle East at a, at a time when women, you know, didn't have equal rights, I was seen as an oddity. I was able to be, again, I could ask questions of of these groups that we now know so much about, Hezbollah, Hamas, Taliban, that are my male colleagues, would, it would have been considered rude or, or maybe I wouldn't have had the same access. Yeah, we talk a lot about confidence and risk-taking on this podcast, and it's, it sounds like many of these stories wouldn't have been told if you weren't there to tell them. And so part of the taking a risk was the fact that you were compelled to tell a story, that it was less about sort of thinking about, wow, I'm taking a risk here, and instead giving a voice to people that didn't have it or providing a perspective that might not have been there otherwise. Is that fair? When I was young and in my 20s and still freelancing, I worked for a group that was based out of Delhi called the Women's Feature Service. And they had gotten funding from the UN and they our mandate was just to tell women's stories. And I began looking into things like honor killings long before people were talking about honor killings in, in um, small uh, villages in in Pakistan. Uh, I went and told the stories of child workers in uh, Nepal, women who had been burned uh, with acid as part of this rise of fundamentalism in Pakistan and other parts of the, the Middle East. And those were because of the assignments of women editors who believed that telling the stories of women, there was a voice missing. Uh, you know, you can't have an economy. I remember the Grameen Bank. You can't have an economy function with that when you're at least leaving out half of the potential workers and and lending money to women was always a good idea in these small Bangladeshi villages. They had the best returns. So that was really formative when I was telling for a few years when I was working for the Women's Feature Service. But I do feel that what was important and what is being lost right now is it's, it's very hard for me to advise young reporters to go and take the kind of risks that we took when I was young. I would like to. I would like my daughters to do the same. I would like, but I also have to think as a mother how the world has changed a bit and how journalists are now targets in these places. But what we are losing as a nation in terms of knowing what's going on in uh, these far-flung places, we would have known uh, more about the rise of ISIS if we had had more foreign correspondents based in Damascus. But those bureaus, after I left, most of the networks uh, closed down their bureaus in Jerusalem. They thought the Intifada was over, and they and when newspapers began contracting, I've gotten involved in something recently that I think is extremely important. Uh, a friend of mine, who we were based in Jerusalem together, started a project called Report 
Support for America, and it's based on the model of Teach for America, which, as you know, was sending young graduates of college and, and young people in their 20s out to teach in uh, public schools across America in order to bolster up that that sense of service in um, public service in our cities. But what we found, and what we found certainly during this last election, is that the, the larger media operations, because we don't have reporters in small towns across America, we missed a lot of the trends that were occurring. The contraction of newspapers where uh, local newspapers are being shut and uh, conglomerates are buying up and running newspapers in cities like businesses, we missed trend lines that, that should have told us that Trump was very popular uh, during the last election. And we have to rectify that. And so Report for America, last year we opened up, we got funding for nine positions in small towns in America, whether some are based in West Virginia, uh, border towns in McAllen, Texas, um, the south side of Chicago, where there's not enough reporting going, taking place in underserved communities. And so we, have not, we had nine positions. We had 890 applications for those nine positions. Wow. So many, many talented young people want to be journalists right now. There's a real sense that journalism and uh, the press is under fire. There's a realization that what we may have lost in the last 15 years in terms of having reporters out not only around the world, and for, as foreign correspondents, but also in our own country. Um, I truly believe that the series of stories that we did on how the military equipment and the military itself was fraying after more than 17 years of war is the reason that the defense budget is the size that it is. It drew the attention of President Trump and others, and there was bipartisan support for how you know we are sending young pilots up to train in aircraft that are falling out of the sky. Um, the reversal, telling those stories, going out and pulling out a, uh, a camera and having uh, young aviators who normally don't talk to the press feel so desperate and and the, I was told that that in the Armed Services Committee they were showing these videos to uh, to Democrats and Republicans on the committee and and people were weeping watching how can we send troops off without the equipment they need without the training they had and we were sending them in, in essence to their deaths and that we we managed to to turn around with this last budget. That is the the way that journalism should work. You shine a light on a problem. The same with the VA. Um, the the stories we've done on veterans issues after and the wear and tear and how caregivers have been treated and and the way uh, the catastrophically injured from the last wars. Uh, those stories are some of my most proud achievements because I believe that that is why many of our politicians again nonpartisan uh, know now uh, what needs to be fixed, what needs to be focused on, what's been broken. Mm -hmm. So I've taken the skills that I, I used and I was passionate about in our foreign assignments and I brought them back to Washington. So you, you work for Fox. You started at Fox News Channel when, what, six months after they opened the doors. Um, you were foreign correspondent at, at, the, at the time. You're still with Fox News Channel. We are at a really interesting point um, in journalism in terms of what feels like the public's trust or distrust of the media where they have lots of options and can pick and choose what they listen to. How do you think about this phenomenon and this moment in time? Why Fox and not another network? I like Fox. I'm a big watcher, as we talked about earlier. 
Um, but but talk to me about how you make sense of all of what's going on. Well, I think one of the biggest surprises to uh, Greg and me when we came home to the U.S. 11 years ago was just how polarized the country had become. That's not news to anyone anymore. But we were shocked because... And that was 11 years ago. And that was 11 <laughs> years ago. And he, you know, we have worked for very different news organizations. I've been with Fox, as you mentioned, since I joined them six months after they started. And I was in Moscow at the time. Greg was working for the AP. And I was reporting for ABC Radio. Fox was looking for a correspondent. They, uh, Fox was launching and building the plane as they went, and and before I knew it, I was on the air uh, reporting about uh, every Monday Yeltsin would fire his cabinet, the Mir space station, if you remember those stories, they was falling out of the sky or on fire. I had not been trained in television journalism. I had never thought I wanted to be a television journalist. And it was, it was I backed into it, and I just happened to be, you know, available at the time that they were looking for someone. Um, I had two great mentors who who trained me up, who were had worked for uh, British Television, and again, I hit the ground running in Moscow, and it was a very newsy time. Um, that, and I haven't looked back. Fox has given me the greatest opportunities of my life. Uh, the stories and the, the the assignments. When we started at Fox, we were a very lean news organization. We were outgunned by CNN by a mile. We had they would send you know four correspondents and and lots of they had lots of equipment. We would I get, would fly into you know one of my first assignments was into Kosovo to cover the Kosovo conflict. You know we were lean and mean. We had none of the bells and whistles, and we we but we were hungry. It was again, it felt like playing sports. It felt like we were the underdog. Uh, we were uh, we were flying into places nobody else was going, and we were competing with the big big dogs at the time, and we were at times outmaneuvering them. I'll never forget being in Pakistan uh, for the, we were waiting for the first nuclear test, and I had flown back in from Russia, and again, CNN, ABC, CBS, all these legendary reporters were there with their big, elaborate, uh, news operations, and none of them knew their way around the Pakistani <laughs> uh, television <laughs> station. But I had a lot of friends there from having lived there. I leveraged that, and uh, and we beat everyone on the air to report when the test took place. And it was because I had made friends along the way, and I had I had known people in these far off outposts that suddenly, uh, you know, our news organizations were back and covering. You know, if I went back to Afghanistan right now, they're the same fixers there who were there before, the same people in government who were the Mujahideen who were fighting one another before, people we've negotiated with for years who I've known and sat in their living rooms and drunk tea over the years. So Fox gave me opportunities. I covered the most important stories in the last 20 years. I was at Arafat's funeral. I was, I covered the tsunami for them. I covered the intifada from start to finish. It was an absolute privilege. And, you know, even within my own family, within your family, I bet within every American's family, you have Fox watchers and you have people who wouldn't ever turn on Fox. Um, we are that kind of country right now. The reason I am very loyal to Fox is that they have been very loyal to me. When I had breast cancer, now it's, we're coming up on nine years ago, 
I was treated by my colleagues and by my bosses. I was told, I was always told, before, even before I had cancer, I was always told to put my family first, to take care of my children. I had three children born, two of them in a war zone when we were over in Jerusalem uh, at the start of the Iraq war. I always felt as a, as a woman working, who was balancing, who had, had issues with work-life balance and the same issues that every woman who's in the workplace has, I was given so much support, love, understanding, and the greatest assignments of a lifetime that, that I'm very loyal to Fox. I'm also very loyal to my military audience. I grew up right next to the Pentagon and I didn't have that connection to the military. And as I've gotten older, the divide, the civil-military divide has gotten bigger and bigger. And the privilege of, of being assigned to the Pentagon after covering uh, wars overseas for so many years, uh, it was, a, it was I came into the Pentagon knowing very little about how our military was structured, very little about the issues that our military families dealt with. And I treated it like a foreign assignment. I learned the new language. I now speak, my husband jokes that I, you know, everything's an acronym to me. Uh, I, I can talk, you know, I can talk uh, military. It has been such an eye-opening experience and such a privilege to get to know um, each branch and, and the sacrifices that, that they have made and to be able to, to, to know that those moms and sisters and brothers and children are tuning in to find out what their parents and loved ones are doing on the front lines. I feel a responsibility every day when I walk into the Pentagon to tell it straight, to make sure that I don't insert my opinion in any way, and Fox has allowed me to do that. Now, I'm not part of the opinion side of Fox. That is the part I think that the nation responds to and people either like it or they don't like it. But I've always been part of the news division and I can tell you that nobody has ever told me what to say on air. Nobody has ever changed a script in a way that I was uncomfortable. And I just feel that uh, the position that I have with Fox is such a privileged position that, that, I, wouldn't, um, that I wouldn't dream of working anywhere else. And is it challenging at times? Do I agree with everything that, that is on our air? Of course not. But that, you, you know, do you agree with everything that your family does or says? But at this point, after 22 years of working for them, I feel that it's family and we've been through a lot together. I, again, I have incredible assignments and it's just a privilege. You mentioned your battle with breast cancer. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? You were diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer. What What is that? Tell a little bit about this Well, experience. it's interesting. Um, when I was diagnosed, um, triple negative was not something people talked about because it had really recently been there was a new trend in breast cancer diagnosis where they were actually dividing, breaking it down into many different uh, types of breast cancer. So it's no longer that you have breast cancer, it's what type do you have, because that indicates what kind of treatment options you have and what kind of drugs have been discovered or not discovered yet to, uh, to deal with it. So triple negative means that you are not positive for certain hormones or indicators. So I'm not hormone positive. There are not drugs like tamoxifen to keep it in check. Mm. It was a new designation. About 20% of breast cancers are triple negative. It used to be that it was uh, a, a pretty scary diagnosis because you, the survival rate wasn't, wasn't that high. But what I learned over time is 
progress has been made in most breast cancers. Uh, triple negative, we still don't have a drug to treat it. But if you can survive two years, your survival rate is actually pretty good, which is good news. But that being said, the, the diagnosis is extremely scary. I was diagnosed when my son was six months old. So my third child uh, was my son, Luke, and I was nursing him at the time. And your daughters were how old? They were young as well. They were young as well. They were, if I remember correctly, seven and nine. Yeah. They were very young. They were sitting where you were when I told them it was a, a fall day like this. I was diagnosed in sep uh, late September. And you guys had returned from Jerusalem. We had come back recently, from Jerusalem. Right? We had been here about a year, and and that morning we had come back from a soccer game, and we sat the girls down to tell them that I had found a grapefruit-sized tumor in my breast. I was breastfeeding at the time, and I was just starting to wean my son. I'd gone back to work, and actually, I'm probably lucky that I did and that I was starting to wean him, and the, the tumor, as my breast sort of deflated, it became more obvious, and we just thought it was mastitis. It was just a kind of a, such, a, such a large tumor that it, it really it was the last thing I thought of. I mean, I didn't think you could get breast cancer while you were pregnant or nursing, but it turns out you can because that's when cells divide very quickly. So I, we told my daughters, they were young, and our son was too young to know what was going on, but, but and I immediately, you know, I think I was diagnosed on a Tuesday and I started chemo the following Tuesday. I did 17 rounds of chemotherapy. Um, I had a double mastectomy, and it was a year of hell. But we kicked into gear, and I mean, maybe it was because uh, I had a lot of experiences with death overseas. I had, you know, and I had reported on a lot of death, and and it wasn't something that I'd ever gotten comfortable with. I probably suffer to this day from a little bit of, um, you know, post trauma from from things that I've seen over the years, but. I, the adrenaline kicked in and there was just no question, as with any mother, we didn't have any time to sit around and say, oh, why me, why us? What? It was, I took all my journalistic skills, I studied everything that was printed about it online, I assigned all my friends different, different ways in which they could help, I consulted with, I didn't have one source, I had three sources, I had three oncologists looking at my case. I got to, I really treated it like I was reporting a news story. And so therefore it was almost an out of body experience. And that's what it used to be like when you, if you did see a, a violent incident overseas, if I did see someone get shot in front of me, or if I saw someone dying from a famine and starving to death and, and or I saw people hanging in trees during the tsunami after I arrived in Thailand within 24 hours of the, of the wave hitting, Cameramen used to describe how you would have this sort of barrier between yourself and the reality that you were witnessing, and that, that camera provided a little bit of a filter. I think putting on my journalist's hat and treating what was going on in my body as an almost out-of-body experience, that probably helped me attack it in the way that I attack news stories or tough assignments. And so that, that's really how we approached it. I'm not, it's not to say that, like with every, any cancer diagnosis and with young children, I mean, it, it was, it was gut-wrenching, oh, sure. no doubt. But I couldn't, I couldn't fall apart because I had children to, sure. to think about. How, what advice would you have for other people? Unfortunately, this is an occurrence that is all too common for mm -hmm. many, many families. And for a family like yours with really small children, what advice would you have for other families in terms of how do you talk to your child 
if you find yourself facing yeah. something like that? Well, I feel very strongly that storytelling, being open, telling your friends, not keeping secrets, and bringing your children into as part of your team in attacking your cancer diagnosis. Every family at some point is going to have a cancer diagnosis. Um, it's just the modern reality. And so the more open you are, the more community support you can have, the less trauma, I think, for your children. Children are not stupid. My daughters are uh, juniors and seniors now, and I've seen some of the essays they've written in their high school years. And we were so open about it that it's fascinating to me to see their, their, their memories of what changed in our family dynamic, what they remember. Um, but I'm telling you, Looking backwards, I wouldn't have done it any differently because I think it built in them a resilience that I'm very proud of, of what they are able to shoulder and the kind of uh, stress they're able to handle and the way they attack problems head on. And, and we, we uh, resilient would be a word I would use to describe what the experience uh, delivered to us as a family unit. And it's not to say it wasn't difficult, but, but, and it's not to minimize the emotions, but I think if you are diagnosed with cancer, first thing you do is, number one, you cannot be aggressive enough. You get multiple opinions. You make sure you're being treated at a nationally recognized cancer center. You don't just have a generic oncologist teach you. You find out what kind of cancer you have, you break it down to the most specific diagnosis, and you find out who the specialist in that kind of cancer is, and you make sure you consult with that person. And you bring your children into it. You don't have secrets, because children know when something is uh, has changed in the family unit and the anxiety they feel by not knowing or by secrets being kept from them, they are remarkable in how they're able to process this. And every child will process it different at different ages, but the more you communicate, and then I found writing about it and telling my story was also very therapeutic. That was my, that was my toughest assignment as a, a journalist and storyteller, but those stories, I kept a blog during, during my cancer year and it really was a life-saving experience i think putting all that emotion down in that blog it probably saved my it saved me from a lot of trauma in addition to that as i recall you and your husband greg wrote a book together yeah. while you were going through <laughs> treatment and it, it, it raised so many questions i mean that's so that that's probably so was the closest <laughs> we were to divorce but yes <laughs> working with your spouse under any circumstances not can easy sometimes yeah. be yeah. difficult yeah. so I, I i have so many questions about that but what was the experience like? well greg was very single-minded you know the great thing about greg always approached when we were in kind of uh uh, war zones he always approached it a little different than me he's not an emotional guy and he doesn't talk about his feelings or emotions and I can't really remember the last time he cried maybe never um, which is very strange because I cry probably once a day um, but he was very you know again he, it was probably good to have a partner who was just very business-like about our diagnosis and a fellow he, he, journalist and a fellow like journalist you. and a fellow journalist and a fellow storyteller um, he had already started a, a book project on our time in in Jerusalem and we ended up with a book called this burning land and it was about um, it was about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and raising children while covering both sides of the conflict and also for two different news organizations he was working for the New York Times at the time and I was working for Fox News 
so when we would go to those chemo sessions, he would always bring his laptop and he would sit just far enough away from me that I couldn't strangle him because he, <laughs> instead of me sitting back and sort of being, when I was being, uh, you know, I had a port at the time and they were putting these really strong drugs and I was getting kind of loopy from the various uh, drugs they were giving me, he would force me to remember things. He would force me to go back and he'd say, tell me about, remind me, okay, when your colleagues from Fox were kidnapped in 2000, the summer of 2006, uh, walk me through what happened. And 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 I'd say, Craig, come on, leave me alone. Let, let me let me just just uh, sit back and and um, and do you know get this chemo. It would be we'd be there for hours. And and he said, no no no, what happened? Wait wait, I can't remember what happened here. And I would start remembering, and I'd start telling him. I'd say, no, 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 you have it wrong. It's this, this is what happened. Remember, Ellie did this, and, and Steve did that. And, and so I would start telling these elaborate stories about when we were in Israel and um, leaving the kids, dropping the kids at school drop-off, and then driving out into the West Bank, crossing through a security checkpoint, and meeting with the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade's mass gunmen in the streets of uh, Tulkarum. And, and and I would start storytelling, going back to as crazy as those days were in Israel and in the, the during the Intifada. They were that was what motivated us. That was what drove us. That was those were some of the happiest years of our life, of being a couple, you know, juggling young children and and crazy news stories and and how we'd get called in the middle of the night and there'd be a suicide bombing down the street and. While that sounds kind of macabre right now and 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 dark, the level of passion we had for 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 telling those stories. So he got me to tell those stories during <laughs> chemo, and by the end of it, we had ourselves a book. Yeah, and, I mean, it and sounds he, like it could have been somewhat important to your treatment. I think it helped get me out of my. I could have I could have gotten quite depressed. You know, yeah. I mean, a chemo ward is not the happiest place, and and I think for cancer patients, keeping your psychology intact and and finding ways to get outside of yourself. I also found by I actually started a lot of women um, start mentoring other breast cancer patients after they're done with treatment because it's a way to kind of give back and get back into it. I found I didn't have that luxury because as a public person who started talking about my cancer diagnosis very early on, I went on the Today Show and Greta Van Susteren had me on Fox and suddenly I was mentoring people while I was going through treatment and it also kept me from going into a dark place. And uh, there was a group that asked me to start speaking even while I was still getting treatment called Look Good, Feel Better. And that to this day, I, I believe that mantra wholeheartedly for cancer patients. They were women who, uh, it was basically at, uh, if you're diagnosed with cancer and you lose your hair, which I did because I, I, they shaved my head and I lost my hair within 17 days. And so I was bald. And and, and you know, in TV, your hair is sort of your your uh, very important. Part of your identity. <laughs> I, it's part sure. of your identity, and uh, yeah, I spent so much time on my hair, and it was really that that kind of um, got me. But look, would feel better. They taught cancer patients how to 
at how to draw in their eyebrows and put on lipstick to counter the look of being a cancer patient. We, we wore different cool wigs, and it was a workshop at all that they have at the hospitals. And I really felt that on days that I walked out of the house and didn't take the time to put on lipstick and put on makeup and put on the sort of go through the look good, feel better uh, protocol, I didn't feel as good. I looked like a cancer patient. I started getting depressed. I started feeling a little sorry for myself. But on days that I, you know, rocked a new outfit and and put on a, some bigger, larger earrings and and did take that little extra effort, you know, it just kept me going. And the same with storytelling. The sta- same with talking to other women going through it. Because you're always able to mentor someone else. And that's what all of us women, whether we're in the the workplace, whether we're a cancer patient, whether we're young moms, older moms, we're always gonna be mentoring people. And that is the best way to get a hold of our own anxieties. So we ask every guest on this podcast to give us a piece of advice or a life hack. It can be something that you might have told your younger self or maybe something that you share regularly with your children. Is there one thing that you can distill down that's kind of your, maybe your mantra for life? Well, be fearless and have children early. If you're a working (laughs) woman, don't think that you have to wait to have your children. Your best work comes after you are pregnant. And I've never felt more efficient than when I was putting on a flak jacket over a pregnant um, (laughs) belly and going out and doing interviews and, and working each day. I think for young women, I would say, don't wait to get married. Don't wait to have children because you are not going to have a full work life if, if you don't have a full family life. Yeah, Jim, amazing, absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for spending time with us this morning. Well, thank you, Laura. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. You can learn more about Jen from our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. You can also follow us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please remember, leave us a review. We love to hear your feedback. Thanks again for listening.